It's October 1st, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, it's great to be a rheumatologist. We've got a lot of tools. We've got a lot of challenging patients. There seems to be a lot of education out there, but boy, it's getting harder and harder. I mean, you have to be a jack of all trades. Today's report, for instance, You've got to be good at cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, vaccination, inflammatory bowel disease. I mean, it just doesn't end. Patient characteristics may inform your treatment approach with specific patient populations. A biomarker-driven study with precisely defined inclusion criteria looked at Arencia, abatacept, and a TNF inhibitor. Don't treat in the dark. Visit arenciadata.com. But first... Let's begin with this report. Pediatric rheumatology talks about the risk of developing juvenile idiopathic arthritis after receiving antibiotics. Not after having infections, after receiving antibiotics. You know, we reported about this, I think, maybe a year or two ago. It's been out there that antibiotic use may predispose kids to developing JIA, This is a population-based study from Sweden where they looked at birth records and antibiotic exposure both in utero in the first few years of life, and they found a higher risk of developing JIA, uh, and it seemed to be across the board. The only interesting thing that sort of distinguished the subtypes of JIA was that systemic JIA was associated with a greater use of in utero exposure to antibiotics. Which antibiotics, you say? Well, most of these were penicillins, so no particular antibiotics seemed to jump out. All the other subtypes seemed to have occurred with antibiotic exposure after birth. And again, the interesting thing on this particular study, not seen in other studies, was that it wasn't infections per se, but the antibiotics more antibiotics, the greater the risk. Now, again, you can make your own conclusions here as to why this occurs. Is this a a microbiome change? Is this a maturational effect of antibiotics? Could they be anti-inflammatory and immunomodulating in themselves on, you know, the thymus and its development and what's going on with the immune system in a young individual? Again, it's all conjecture. And this is epidemiologic data. It's nonetheless interesting. I mean, it's supposed to temper the overuse of antibiotics. Good luck with that. Another real interesting report actually comes from the National Danish Patient Registry, uh, a report that just appeared last week from a meeting called the European um, Society of Diabetes, I think, EASD meeting, where uh, I think a novel report, high numbers uh, showing that exposure to bisphosphonates was related to a reduced risk of developing future type 2 diabetes. In this study, they had 160,000 type 2 diabetics and 500,000 or so controls without diabetes, and they showed that alendronate was associated with about a 35% reduction in the risk of developing diabetes, type 2 diabetes. If you were on alendronate for more than eight years, it went down to more than 50% reduction. How does this happen? It's the magic of epidemiology and p-value fishing. I don't know. Um, The authors didn't offer one. Of course, it's just an abstract from the meeting. If you research the subject, maybe there's a role for bone-derived osteokines or cytokines from bone that could influence glucose metabolism. Um, 
there doesn't seem to be a differential effect of bisphosphonates on diabetics versus non-diabetics. It does seem that diabetics may have worse disease when they have osteoporosis. Other than that, I find this interesting. So, you know, BEST is a study that keeps on giving. Tom Heisenga and uh, colleagues have another interesting report coming from BEST. It says something that supports that I've always said, which is, if you're worried about RA flaring in the future, I always say it's going to flare in the way it began. The, jo the joints that were involved in the beginning, it'll be the joints that are involved in the end. And that's actually proven in this 508 BEST study, as you know, a four-treatment cohort study treat to target we're not going to get into the results but they showed that your baseline joint involvement your baseline swollen joints really predicted future swelling and flares in those same joints now yes other joints could occur but if you had it involved in baseline you had almost a two to three fold higher risk of getting it later on way to go tom and the best investigators Scandinavian Journal of Rheumatology does a really interesting study clustering almost a thousand RA patients into different types. And they did their clustering using um, agglomerative hierarchical clustering. Agglomerative hierarchical clustering. I think that's been outlawed as a form of torture at Guantanamo. I'm not sure. Or it could be the methodology that they use that I don't understand. Nonetheless, they came up with the bottom line is that the highest healthcare costs were associated with disease activity and comorbidity. I think we should underscore that comorbidity factor here. Um, but they did find four cohorts. The biggest cohort, over 500 or more than half their patients, were young RA patients with low cost and low activity. That We're probably not paying enough attention to that, su that subset. The next biggest cost, a few hundred patients with chronic pain, disability, and fatigue. The third cohort were the, a smaller cohort, high cost, high disease activity, less pain, interestingly. And the smallest cohort were those with comorbidities with an extreme amount of cost associated with their care. So even though comorbidities is the lowest frequency cohort, they come with a big you know, uh, a, a cost of care um, uh, dollar you know, tag to it. So again, I think this is an interesting analysis and something we might pay attention to if we take care of RA patients. Uh, the Scandinavians um, also came up with a very interesting, this is a Finnish study that looked at the risk of native joint infections. This would be prosthetic joint infections uh, or not, I'm sorry, this is septic arthritis following um, post-arthroscopic procedures. Now, a longitudinal study, again from not Finland, I'm sorry, Iceland, looked at a fairly large cohort and showed that um, post-arthroscopically there was an increase in iatrogenic native joint infections. Now, the numbers here are really low. I mean, so the overall risk of a native joint infection was 0.17 percent, 17 per thousand. goes up to 24 per thousand um, after knee arthroscopy. So it does go up. And one of our colleagues, Raul Patel, in, in social media commented like, why are they even reporting this? This shouldn't be happening if they're having common common precautions that one takes. And he's right. The numbers here are very low. The thing that he did show, I mean, the, that the report did show was that the risk of these native joint infections has risen threefold in the last um, 20 years. And I think that's worth noting. 
talking about steroid injections and what may happen, a case control study looked at the risk of intraarticular steroids and showed an increased risk of developing rapidly destructive hip disease, RDHD. Don't use that abbreviation, but they did in their report. The hazard ratio um, associated with steroid injections uh, was almost a nine-fold increased risk. That's something to pay attention to. I think this is something that we should worry about. Um, we do a lot of uh, steroid injections. Hip steroid injections are often given to people who are at the end of their rope. You know, they're on their way to surgery. You want to avoid surgery. You can't do surgery at this time point. So, you know, this is a, there's, a, there's a risk to be had here um, if you're going to do an intraarticular steroid. Uh, maybe that it could accelerate uh, these findings. So something we don't talk a lot about here in the United States is biosimilars. Why? Because only 60% of them have made it to market. Currently, there are 31 FDA-approved biosimilars, but yes, 40% have not yet hit the market because of legal wranglings, financial arrangements, God knows what else. If you want to understand biosimilars in the United States, follow the money, and that would be the answer. Um, the rate of drug growth in the United States was 6.1%. Uh, this is actual spending on drugs from 2015 to 19. However, biologic spending was m more than double that, 14.6%. And as you might well imagine, biologics account for almost half the cost of U.S. drug spending currently. Now, how much are we spending on biologics? I don't know, but a nice rep report this week said that generics and biosimilars had a record $338 billion in sales in, two, in 2020. Um, when I kind of was scratching around inside that report, it looked like it was less than $100 billion from biosimilars, and that might grow in the future when we get more biosimilars on the market. I think one of the, a lot of the big things that were in the news this week is all the vaccine talk. It won't stop. You know, patients are wondering about the booster and went together first. I put this out because I think it's really important, and that is, can you get the influenza vaccine, which we should be getting now, and should be done before the end of October, can you get it with the COVID vaccine? And the CDC says yes. I mean, you can give multiple vaccines together. Think about army recruits. They go in, they get in line, they get shot with a pneumatic gun that's got 25 vaccines in one shot. And boom, 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 they go down the line. I know I did this in a third world country once. Um, and you can deliver multiple vaccines at the same time. So yes, you can uh, give influenza and COVID vaccines together. They recommend that you basically follow all the precautions for each. The CDC reminds us the flu vaccine, influenza vaccine, should be delivered by the end of October. It's really important right now because you don't want to be confusing this fourth surge of COVID with the onset of influenza, which could occur in the next four months. I'll remind you, in 2020, the rates of influenza went down 98% due to, where's my mask? Due to, here's my mask, in Fauci we trust physical distancing and washing your hands. Mask up, back up, wash up is what I say. Um, MMWR has come out and said that you can get the um, uh, third dose if you are over 65 and if you are immunosuppressed uh, or taking immunosuppressants. Their recent safety study that was um, published says that the side effect rates are the same with the third vaccine as that seen with the second dose. So there's no new increase 
in adverse events when we, one um, goes and gets a booster. Strong wording came from the CDC just yesterday. The CDC strongly advising um, that the COVID vaccination be given to women who are pregnant either before or during their pregnancy. They note very low rates, especially among certain um, ethnic groups. While the highest rates are like 45% in Asians, Hispanics and African Americans are, are, are like 20% and less. Overall, it's in the 20% that, pe- that pregnant women who've been vaccinated. And as of September 27, 125,000 confirmed COVID cases and a total of, what's that, 22,000 hospitalized and 161 deaths. All preventable. So go ahead. Conf- uh, and we've talked about this in the last two weeks about what you advise your pregnant women who are going to um, consider the vaccine. So when talking about pregnancy, I think it's a lot like talking about the movie The Godfather. You know, Clemenza, he says, leave the gun, take the cannoli. In the case of pregnancy, leave the Tylenol, take the aspirin. What's he talking about? I haven't lost my mind. I'm still on script. U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF, has recommended that women um, uh, who are at risk for preeclampsia should be taking a daily aspirin regimen um, at the end of the first trimester. Um, so that's after the first trimester. At the says at the end of the first trimester. So look up that citation. This is uh, relevant to our patients, uh, especially lupus patients. I think that it might be advisable for such patients, even if they don't have a history of antiphospholipid syndrome. The other pregnancy came out a report this week that was, I think, very controversial, very confusing. Was a big report that got a lot of play at the end of last week, last Friday, early this week, about. Um, Tylenol, acetaminophen, paracetamol being potentially hazardous in pregnancy. I thought this was crazy, but this comes from an endocrine journal, which I found interesting. 91 scientists, clinicians, and public health professionals um, alarmed the world last week when they suggested that acetaminophen during pregnancy may have hazardous effects on fetal development. In their preamble, they talked about what is out there, that there's increasing rates of developmental disability in our society right now. Forget about the drugs, just developmental dis- disability. They say that there's also an increasing rate of neurological, urogenital, and reproductive disorders. They then proceed to go through the literature using epidemiologic and animal data, experimental data, to say that there could be links here that we should be paying attention to. They're import- they say that you know no regulatory agency has given this the time of day, and none of the societies are talking about it, and they want to create a big splash and want the regulators and societies to talk about it. Well, that may be a likely result. But I can tell you, when you look at the data, I think it's a lot of nonsense based on conjecture and, you know, a lot of animal data. I'm not going to stop my pregnant patients who are having a lot of pain, back pain, you know, um, all kinds of muscle and, and joint pain at the, especially in the third trimester, uh, acetaminophen is recommended by many societies and by regulators and by guidelines for the management of pain and discomfort and fever in pregnant women. I wouldn't change that practice based on this report. There were several reports this week about heart and rheumatoid uh, arthritis. Um, one, actually saying there's an increased risk of mortality following heart bypass, a 50% increased risk 
um, in RA patients if should they undergo bypass, and a higher risk of MI following bypass. That's about a 60% increased risk. This is finished data, retrospective data, comparing almost 400 patients to almost 8,000 non-RA patients. You know, it's kind of convincing evidence, and we do worry about cardiac effects in our patients. So um, clearly an RA patient who needs a cabbage needs a cabbage. But there are going to be consequences um, to the cabbage that may be a little bit higher in a patient who has rheumatoid arthritis. Another report appears in Arthritis and Rheumatology um, saying that early diastolic dysfunction in premenopausal RA patients, uh, they, this is a study that interestingly finds evidence of diastolic dysfunction before the patient has any symptoms, before there's any evidence of uh, overt heart failure. They studied 170 patients overall with 2D echoes. About 70 of them had RA, then the others were non-RA controls. While RA patients had an equal and unchanged or uh, sort of an expected amount of ejection fraction being greater than 50%, there was more uh, echo evidence of diastolic dysfunction in the RA patients, uh, and it was felt that this was premature. Diastolic dysfunction, 47% versus 26% in the controls, and that was highly significant. Uh, again, who's at greater risk? Women, 30 to 49 years old, were, had a threefold higher risk, uh, and it was higher in women who had high CRP levels. So again, the, this is another one of those things we have to worry about in our RA patients. Uh, I, found, I thought this was an interesting report because it's going to impact one of my questions later on. 108 patients with autoimmune cytopenias. That includes autoimmune hemolytic anemia, uh, ITP, TTP, etc., who were given COVID vaccination showed low rates of post-vaccination flares. So they showed like a 7% increase in AIHA and ITP manifestations. Same um, um again, was seen with other uh, autoimmune hematologic disease. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in one of the cases we're going to talk about from uh, you, the audience. Lastly, uh, there's an interesting study called Global Secure that says that the safety of drugs that they use does not seem to impact COVID outcomes. So IBD drugs overall, and that includes, uh, and biologics. So this includes mesalamine, sulfasalazine, azathioprine, um, uh, 6-MP, methotrexate, combination therapies and biologic therapies, including the TNF inhibitors, IL-1223, IL-23, and integrin targeting therapies, all do not seem to have any impact on rates of severe COVID outcomes. I thought that was um, kind of in line with what we're seeing in our inflammatory arthritis patients. If you're interested in IBD, there's a really good review of new drugs for IBD in the current issue of the little-known New England Journal of Medicine. This week, we've got three cases and questions from you, the audience. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got an interesting case or question, you can click on that on the website or on the email and record it, and we'll play you and your voice back, or you can email email me. I've got two emails. Um, Dr. Haitham Elisair, a rheumatologist from New Zealand, wants to know what do you tell your patients who are taking zolindronic acid, uh, and they're taking, uh, they're also on steroids, and they're about to have dental surgery in the next few months. I tell them, you know, don't stop. 
Um, you know, as you know, the dentists are all wigged out about this. The evidence is that those who get um, more osteonecrosis of the jaw are those who've had, uh, who are on bisphosphonates and have had any of those events in the past. Um, but the, the bottom line is if you, there are guidelines on uh, for dentists from dental societies that say that, that, that um, whether it's IV or oral, the risk of um, bony osteonecrosis appears to be incredibly low, so much so that it should not dictate changes in therapy. The rates being approximately 0.7 cases per 100,000 patient years. Yes, IV patients might get uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw um, within a few months earlier than those who are on oral who need to be on it uh, many years more. But again, the bottom line is you probably shouldn't stop it. And that really is what I think drives the decision for me. Meaning that how much does a patient really need to be on the bisphosphonate? Is a patient due for a drug holiday? Is a patient, you know, in that gray zone between, you know, almost normal and mild osteopenia where the benefits are not as great as they would be for someone who's got, you know, really uh, worrisome numbers, meaning, uh, you know, a fracture rate greater than 10% or, uh, you know, DEXA values at minus four or, or even worse. Those you don't, you know, stopping the drug is going to be far more hazardous than continuing it and incurring some really minuscule risk associated with the bisphosphonate. Holly Bastian sends me a, a question. Um, thank you, Holly. I, she has a woman with cutaneous shingles three times in the last three months taking adalimumab. While she has not personally witnessed any of these episodes of shingles, the patient's description seems credible. She's thinking of giving the Shingrix vaccine. Um, she wants to know what to do about biologic therapy and do you stop it before vaccination and for how long and sh or should the patient be on Valtrex prophylactically? Number one, no to Valtrex prophylactically. I think first that, um, you know, you really want repeat episodes of shingles to be diagnosed by you if you're comfortable making that diagnosis or a dermatologist. I've got lots of patients, as do you, who say they have shingles and they do not. Okay, so it's got to meet the definition of shingles. Second, three episodes of shingles in the last three months merits an infectious disease consultation. One, to deal with some of the questions that you raise, and two, to again reaffirm the diagnosis. Um, it, it, the patient should have received Shingrix. I'm assuming the patient is old enough to get Shingrix, but someone with recurrent shingles infections um, probably should pay the $330 out of their pocket to get the vaccination. Um, there are no clear guidelines on what to do with the biologic or um, the, uh, in this case, adalimumab, or the, if the patient was already on, for instance, a, a JAK inhibitor. Um, I tend not to stop um, adalimumab and, and, and TNF inhibitors when I'm going to give the Shingrix. The same can be said even for JAK inhibitors, although there was a report from last year's ACR meeting, abstract 1997, Kalmark and colleagues, actually Kevin Winthrop talked about it also in one of his reports, 40 RA patients um, on tofacitinib showed that about eight of the 40 did not have a good response to the vaccine, and that being the Shingrix vaccine. 
So, uh, and that kind of goes along with what we've seen during COVID and recommendations during COVID. You probably should be stopping certain drugs um, to uh, when you're going to take the COVID vaccine or when you get the Shingrix vaccine. And, and that does include JAK inhibitors. does not include uh, TNF inhibitors. Yes, methotrexate. Yes, JAKs. Yes, Abitacep. These are ACR guidelines. So I probably would stop. You should know, again, there's no guidelines on this that are firm. But there, um, when I surveyed um, a thousand rheumatologists about what do you do when someone gets Shingrix and they're on a biologic, like 90% of you stop the biologic. How long? No one knows. I, if I had to stop because someone got shingles, I would stop it until they develop crusted over lesions. And I certainly wouldn't stop for as long as six months, probably a lot less than that. But I, I might hold a JAK inhibitor. I, would, I personally would not hold adalimumab. I'm waiting for guidelines to tell me I'm wrong. So we have one more, and this is going to be a, uh, a talkback voice recording. This is from Dr. Mark Niemer. Mark asked a question. I'm sorry, it's not working right now. He asked a question about um, one of his patients with, uh, I can't remember if the patient had myositis or not, but the patient received the COVID vaccine and developed um, very high CP- oh, yeah the patient had inflammatory myositis Re- received the COVID-19 vaccine he didn't say which one and developed very high elevations I want to say 8,000 um, CPK elevations following the vaccination what's he to do is this related to the vaccine is this you know the, the disease it certainly could be the disease but it, if it has a temporal relationship to the vaccine I would be suspicious you know there is a lot of literature right now I found two online where, um, yes, myalgias are common, but there are many cases of autoimmune disease. You know, one of the more common autoimmune diseases out there is pericarditis and myocarditis. It wouldn't make, and, and I haven't found many reports of overt myositis, but, you know, there's a lot of ANA positivity that happens as a result of COVID. Um, not as a result of COVID vaccination, but as a result of COVID vaccination, there are reports of pericarditis, myocarditis, and other inflammatory and autoimmune features that have been seen. I've seen RA patients get, get worse. Again, these happen usually within two or three days of the vaccination. The symptoms last, you know, anywhere from one to three weeks and tend to resolve. I think your plan of attack would be to support the patient. Um, it wouldn't hurt to give a burst of steroids unless there was a contraindication to get them back under control. Uh, I would assume that the CPK elevation probably was without symptoms because usually flares like this, the enzymatic flares usually precede the clinical flare. So maybe a burst of steroids before the clinical flare might make sense. Anyway, that's it for this week on the podcast. You can go to the website, check out these citations and more. Tune in next week. As we said before, Mask up, back up, wash up. Now you can listen up. Take care. In recent years, it's become increasingly possible to identify higher-risk rheumatoid arthritis patients even at the time of diagnosis. This allows rheumatologists to make more informed treatment decisions based on individual patient profiles. For example, several studies have been published showing that seropositivity for anti-CCP and RF together can influence patient outcomes. The results suggest that serologic status may be used to optimize one's approach. To see these biomarker-driven results and to learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.